Hello and welcome to the world's best Oklahoma State podcast, 2018 season edition. My name is Mark Cooper. I'm the Oklahoma State beat writer here at the Tulsa World, uh, heading into my fifth season on the beat. And I'm joined today in our little podcast closet, as he called it, columnist Bill Haston, who... I think uh, it's a pantry. Pantry. I, I like that. It's a little small rectangular room. I don't know how you'd describe it to somebody who can't see it. It's, it's exactly the same dimensions as uh, most of the, uh, the municipal jail cells you would see, right? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? About, about uh, 10 feet by 8 feet, 8 by 10 feet. Yeah, with with somewhat soundproof walls, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. gray, it's gray. It's you know what though, it works. Yeah, that's true. We'll make it work. Yeah, and and hopefully we'll make it work uh, here every week throughout this this 2018 season. Uh, like I said, my fifth year on the beat, Bill uh, preceded me on the beat, and and we were on it the first couple of years together. See, I was on the Oklahoma State beat specifically in '04, which was Les's Les Miles' final season through 2011, when Oklahoma State won the Big 12. And then I was back on the beat fourteen fifteen, and then Mark took, and then Mark Mark was on the beat with me in fourteen and fifteen. Right. And then you took it over as the primary guy, in sixteen. Yeah. Correct. That's right. So. Yeah, I mean. So for me, I mean, crazy five I, years. That's that's unbelievable. I arrived in Stillwater uh, about the same time as Taylor Cornelius, and Mason Rudolph, for that matter. But no, you did. Your your yeah. your arrival coincided with their true freshman years. That's right. Mm-hmm. So that's crazy. Uh, this this year will be interesting because it's the first one since 2014 that there's a little bit of preseason adversity in terms of who the quarterback's going to be. Uh, first one since 2013, and that there's a new defensive coordinator. And even when when you go back there, Glenn Spencer was somebody everybody knew. Uh, and while the schedule doesn't get very exciting until the third week of the season when Boise State comes to town, uh, and this kind of gets into you know, our sort of preview of the season opener, this first week for an FCS opponent actually has quite a few storylines, as sure we were does. just talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the obvious. With any time there's a transition at quarterback, uh, there's a fascination with how it's going to look, how he's going to look. Uh, and then, so obviously, Taylor Cornelius succeeding Mason Rudolph, who's one of the two or three or four most accomplished quarterbacks in the history of the program. And you got Taylor Cornelius, who waited his turn. Like you were looking up, you were researching before we started this, the older quarterbacks of the Gundy era. He's right there with JW. And of course, Whedon was his circumstances were different in that he you know, played baseball but uh, before he got to Oklahoma State. But uh, Taylor Cornelius is an experienced guy. He's a young man. He's, what would you say, he'll turn 23? Turns 23 the day after the Boise State game. Oh, that's right. I even wrote that. I looked that up a couple of weeks ago. That's right. That, uh, so he'll be 23 that week. So he's a very experienced guy. He and Yursich have been in lockstep for all his whole career. So nobody knows the system better than Taylor Cornelius, but yet in the sense of, you know, game pressure and, and taking it on his shoulders and having to win games for Oklahoma State, he's a rookie. You, you just said something that kind of got my mind working. I, I don't think there are many places around the country that have a, an offensive coordinator and a quarterback who have been on campus on their fifth year together. That's mm-hmm. really unique, and it only becomes more unique because – there aren't, there aren't many fifth-year seniors who sat four years waiting their turn. Not guys who can really play, there aren't. No, mm. no. And, and, and even 
you know, I had a long talk with, I say long, I had a nice phone talk with Mike Gundy a couple of days ago, and he said, one of the questions I asked was, how do you keep a room full of good quarterbacks happy? Because as you pointed out, uh, when we were talking about it before I talked with Coach Gundy, you said, that's a good question to ask because Spencer Sanders, when he signed in February, you know he thought, I'm going to be the starter on opening day. When Drew Brown transferred from Hawaii, you know he thought, you know, transfer grad transfers don't go somewhere to be right on a death chart. They go to be on the field. Yeah. And so, um, no, it's a unique quarterback situation, but, you know, it's a – it's a great positive for Oklahoma State that, that if anything, Taylor Cornelius since the spring has just fortified his hold on the job, right? I mean, every, yeah. every report is pretty glowing and positive about Taylor Cornelius. So I think they feel real good about his ability to get them, to keep them at that 10 win level. And he's kind of been going through this for really three years. I mean, if you think back to the last two training camps when he was the number two quarterback, that battle for number two felt like, Okay, when when is Keandre Woodty this this guy they brought in on a scholarship, mm-hmm. who TCU wanted? When is he going to beat out Taylor Cornelius, the former walk-on for the job? And every single year, Taylor Cornelius has kind of held his ground, mm-hmm. and he did the same thing this spring, and again in August when he had Drew Brown and Spencer Sanders here. Obviously, he had, he had proved himself uh, sort of versus Woodty each of the last three seasons, but to do so again against you know with Sanders and Brown there, I think it you're right. It's it's a positive sign. I think there's probably a lot of people who don't have very high expectations for Cornelius because of what you just said. There aren't guys who, who can play who sit for four years, right. but he kind of seems like maybe just sort of a different breed. Uh, being a walk-on, maybe part of that, you know, grateful for, for the opportunity Oklahoma State gave him off the bat. And right. uh, also it probably means he's a little bit of a team guy. Well, and it means too, I would, I'm presuming it means too, he loves Oklahoma State, loves Stillwater, and he, you know, he, he, he's comfortable there and enjoying his, his experience there. But before we get into all these other topics, uh, you know, the, the, on the subject of quarterback patience, uh, Tulsa had a kid in the late 2000s, uh, and he waited his turn behind Paul Smith, okay? His name was David Johnson. And in 08, as a fifth-year senior, Mark, he finally got his chance to start at Tulsa, right? He had never... He had gotten a few snaps, like Taylor Cornelius has gotten a few snaps, but not meaningful snaps, not not trying to win the game uh, type snaps. And yet in, in 2008, granted, with Gus Malzahn as his coordinator and a really good team around him, but he was second in the country in passing behind Sam Bradford, or maybe third. But he, was, he had a sensational year. And so I'm just saying, Taylor Cornelius is six foot six. He's 235 pounds. He's the same size as a senior in college that Ben Roethlisberger was. He's a big man now. And they swear by his arm. Maybe It may not be. It's not a Whedon arm. And on deep throws, probably not quite a Rudolph arm. And you pointed out some fun, some differences in fundamentals where he's a little better maybe than Mason. Yeah, I think, I think he has and, a stronger arm. Uh, absolutely. I don't know. You know, I, I would guess Rudolph – is more accurate, especially on, you know, those throws outside the numbers we always talked about. And I think the one thing that Rudolph did that it's going to be hard for a first-year starter to duplicate is Rudolph had a really unique feel inside the pocket for when the pass rush was, where it was coming from, and just sort of those subtle steps left or right or forward or backward to extend a play where uh, you sort of expect, even though Cornelius is about to be 23 years old, any first-year starter's instinct is going to be, okay, where do I run? 
and, and so that might be a big difference right, right. off the bat. Well, that's right. The, the inst- his instinct, I would think, until he gets a few games under his belt, and maybe all season, would, would be to escape rather than to extend the play. And that's what made guys like Rudolph and Baker Mayfield so great. Their ability to extend the play, subtle movement while keeping their eyes downfield. Uh, both those guys got a million yards on plays like that. And, and that's just something Taylor Cornelius is going to have to learn to do. And, and maybe he doesn't. Maybe he is a tuck-and-run type guy. And, you know, and that's not bad either as long as he knows when to get down or get out of bounds. The one thing, the one thing I can pretty much promise with Cornelius, uh, I, I spent a, a day and a half or two days in, in his hometown of Bushland, Texas last week for a story that will come out before the season opener. Uh, but his, his demeanor and, and kind of he's got the same facial expression all the time. You and I have both talked to him. He doesn't say very much, uh, especially when you ask him about himself. That's who he's been basically his his entire life. Uh, you know, his coaching staff and, and his parents both told me uh, kind of the same story of a game uh, against Muleshoe of all schools, Lincoln Riley's alma mater, and, and he scores a walk-off touchdown, and, and the coaches who are up in the box are banging on the glass windows of the press box, as you can imagine. Everybody's going crazy, and Cornelius just sort of handed the ball off, jogged off the field, didn't act like, like anything had happened, and... Uh, here, everybody around him going crazy, and right. and so that that's just sort of who he is, and and that's probably a good thing early on in the year. You're not really going to see anything wear on him if he struggles. I right. think he's he's just sort of very even keeled. I'm just going to be interested to see how he is managed in these first two because Oklahoma State's going to win comfortably over Missouri State and South Alabama. So, if I'm the head coach, I want Taylor Cornelius to get 140 game snaps before Boise comes to town. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't want to mess around with uh, as curious as I am to see Drew Brown play and Spencer Sanders play, and you can play Spencer some now, you know, off and on because of the four-game deal, the four-game rule without burning a red shirt, but um, I I want uh, Cornelius to have as many game snaps as possible before that big game in week three for him to get accustomed to the speed of it all. I mean, even Missouri State, no, I mean, he, you if he throws a pick on opening night, it won't surprise me. It will not surprise me because he's going to be trying to impress his coaches. And, you know, it's just different. The first quarter of a game when it's 0-0 zero to zero is a lot different than when he goes in to finish up the fourth quarter against Kansas. It's just a, it's just a different animal. So. Completely he's got, different. He's got some learning to do these first two games. Completely different than last year where we didn't see Rudolph take a snap in the fourth quarter until the fourth game of the season. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to want Cornelius out there. And uh, for that matter, you, you do probably want Drew Brown out there just as a backup option to see him get a little bit of work too in case things do go south or, or there's an injury because I was just crunching some numbers. And in eight of Mike Gundy's 13 seasons as head coach, Oklahoma State's had to start two quarterbacks. Some of that was ineffectiveness early on in his in those years but other times there's been injuries you know 2012 was all sorts of things well let's see bobby reed got injured uh west lunt got injured zach robinson got a, uh got blown up by texas tech and alex kate had to start in the famous colorado game that brandon whedon finished uh west lunt got hurt even mason rudolph his first year as mason a starter rudolph. dax garman jw they, was the, the, in 15, was the Bedlam was the only game start that Mason Correct. missed, though, right? Yeah. He, he only played that one series when yeah. he threw a pick six, yeah. and, and he was finished. So, yeah, no, you, you 
but and then there's a matter of sportsmanship too. If you're up sixty-three to ten, I mean, you probably need to start filtering your twos and threes out there too. So there's that. But um, and there's a chance, I would say, even a probability that you will see these kinds of scores in these first two games because Justice Hill ain't going to get tackled. Right. He's the guy you want. Yeah. You know, Mike Gundy says 15 touches. I don't really buy that over no, the course of a year. But in this first two games, I, you don't want him getting more than 15 carries against Missouri State. You want to see what L.D. Brown and Shuba Hubbard do in the third and fourth quarter against Missouri State. Uh, but, you know, we we talked about... Yeah, but, the, but, uh, J.D. King and Hubbard and, and even a couple of others, they can take it to the house. I mean, right. I mean OSU's going to have staggering run game totals. Uh, these first two games, and maybe all year long, but for sure in these first two. You know, we we talked about there being more storylines than typical for a game against an FCS opponent, and uh, you know, for you that that probably meant all the things around the game too, the, the improvements, right? Well, I mean, uh, you, are you calling uh, the sale of beer an improvement? It's an it's a <laughs> a lot of people are. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting uh, new. Um, aspect of Oklahoma State football is the sale of beer, right? First year for that. And, and they've, they've, there will be 22, beer sold at 22 locations. They had to hire like 100 new people just specifically for the, for the beer enterprise. And it's going to, it's not going to be a huge revenue generator. It's more of a, a, just something for the fans, you know. It's not a big money deal. It's just not. Uh, because it costs a lot of money to do beer Right, and, and then granted, you're charging eight dollars for a sixteen dollar. I mean, I, I'm sorry, eight dollars for a sixteen ounce cup of beer. Uh, so you would think, man, massive profit. But at the end of the day, there's a little bit of profit. But they say they're going to pour it right back into the, the yeah. Game and, day and there and there might be more profit too because in selling the beer and in keeping the stadium closed. I would expect, and with the additional concessions they've added, they're going to sell more food inside the stadium than they ever had to. So, so there'll be a little bit of a profit well, with all of that. Well, the billion pound out elephant in the room Thursday night and beyond is the video board. Yeah. Uh, because relative, if you look at the physics of, of AT&T Stadium and that giant board that, that hovers, that is suspended over the field, in, in, in its own way, at at the Gallagher Iba, the the board mounted on the west side of Gallagher Iba, it's kind of as uh, it's almost as it's very comparable. In my, I have to see it first. You know what I mean? I want to see how it looks when the stadium's packed and there's a game on the field. Uh, but it's going to be as as overwhelming, I think, in Boone Pickens Stadium, which has fifty six thousand seats, as the big board is at AT&T Stadium, which has well, 90,000 or whatever it has. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that works. And the bottom of that video board, Mark, is only, I'm just guessing, you may know this, I'm guessing, 18 feet above the ground. It's not that far. Turf. You're right. Yeah. It, it, so it's the most uniquely positioned video board in college football. It's a big boy. It's a uh, if you're si- if you're sitting in the opposite end zone, if you're sitting in the west end zone, you probably watch that rather than watching the game on the field. It's that's what I'm saying. I mean, I've I've covered, I've never attended a game at AT and T as a spectator, but uh, probably covered eight games over the 
10 years of crazy. Ten, I mean, I, tenth my, season of that stadium. My first game on, on this beat you was in AT&T, AT&T against AT&T. But, Florida I mean, State. It's, it's, it's difficult to make yourself keep your eyes on the field instead of the video board. And now we've got this monster at Stillwater, which may not be the biggest in the country, but I'm just saying the way it fits physically within Boone Pickens Stadium, it's it's just as, as grand or as prevalent or whatever the word is within that space as the biggest boards in the country are in their stadiums. So it's going to be interesting to see, A, uh, if, if it if it works and B, if it's going to be in the same place next year. And and C, if it affects the gameplay at yeah. all, on the, if, if the players are affected. And uh, Mike Gundy said it didn't really have any effect when they scrimmage, but I think it's going to be different when it's at night and it's a game atmosphere. And I would expect that there are going to be times that it has to be turned off. What are the because... dimensions of that board? Do you remember? Anyway, it, it's... You know, I, I mean, I remember reading about it at first, and then we were there for media day, and I went outside and eyeballed it, and and it is, it's going to be, uh, it's just going to be one of those things. I think most of the fans are going to have to really remind themselves to w- watch the game on the field instead of on the board. You call you called it the elephant in the room. I feel like it needs a name rather than just the board. It's so um, it's so uh, needs it needs some sort of nickname. Um. I'm like you. I mean, I'm I'm going to be fascinated by it. So, yeah, as as op- season opening games against an FCS opponent go, this is and for storylines. If, if you had Rudolph back, if you had Washington back, if you if you didn't have the video board, I mean, I mean, this would be such a snoozer of an opener, right? Instead, I mean, it's fascinating for football reasons. And, and we didn't even talk about the fact that it's the first game with a new defensive Jim, coordinator. Jim Knowles and that defense, how's that going to look? That's, that's going to be a way more telling. Week three. Week three, uh, when Boise comes and, in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, kind of taking a look ahead at, at the entire season, uh, I know you just spoke to Pat Jones earlier this week. There's a story on com that he thinks this can be a 10-win team, which I think you know maybe turned a lot of heads. I haven't heard many people other than Pat come out and say 10 wins are on the table here uh but you know what's sort of your expectation when you look at the schedule that Boise State game is the one I'd circle because if they beat Boise State the path to 6-0 and is, is there obviously Iowa State's no pushover and that'll be a difficult game and Oklahoma State's trailed in the fourth quarter against Iowa State three consecutive years but it's conceivable that they go to Manhattan second weekend in October at 6-0 and if they can right. beat Boise. Pat Jones uh when we when when I talked with him uh, for these blogs, he, he mentioned you know seven and zero going into Texas, and I said, okay, if they're seven and zero, they will have won at Manhattan, and I'm still of the belief that it's hard to win at Manhattan, really hard, and so so after Boise, it's Texas Tech comes to town, and as you pointed out in a piece of copy maybe in the preview. With Going for their 10th win in a row over Texas Tech. Yeah, that used to be a really, uh, that was a real maddening series for Oklahoma State for a long time. And then you go to Kansas, that's, uh, you're going to win that. And then Iowa State comes to Boone Pickens. <laughs> uh, you should be able to out-athlete Iowa State. But, you know, 
very, very well coached. Like I said, last three years, Iowa State had double-digit leads led in the fourth quarter, and, and Oklahoma State had to rally. And so those are the types of games you wonder, is that where the difference between Rudolph and Cornelius show up? So I, I wouldn't call that one a win, for sure. I think it's... No, but you should win that at home. Right. And then you go to Manhattan, and that's hard. Um, but, I mean, the schedule sets up perfectly for a team in transition, you know? And then at what, whatever happens in November, time will tell. And for that matter, uh, nobody knows what Texas is going to look like uh, yeah. by, the, by that eighth game. Nobody knows. And nobody knows what Baylor's going to look like in the ninth game. Mm-hmm. No. So... I'm just saying, there's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a gruesomely difficult schedule at the end of it. I don't even know if it's gruesomely difficult. It's not like it was three years ago. Remember that schedule? That was Baylor, TCU, uh, Bedlam. Yeah. At the end. Um, this this one this one could this one could very very well be like that. Could be, uh, but you got Bedlam on the 10th of November, followed by a home game against West Virginia, followed by. Uh, a game at Fort Worth against TCU. I mean, those, those are very difficult, uh, three very difficult sides. They're the three highest-ranked teams in the Big 12 in the preseason. Yep. So. And two of those on the road. It's just, I don't know, Gundy's 14th season, uh, it's just amazing how time flies, but his 14th season. And, you know, uh, I, I had to talk with him about a variety of topics, but, I, I asked him if he was irked at all by being left out of the preseason top 25. At first, he kind of said he wasn't. It doesn't matter. He shouldn't have rankings before October anyway, kind of what he always says. But then he said some things that kind of led you to believe, yeah, he is irked by it because they've been in the top 10 at some point in eight, in eight of the last 10 seasons. And they've been in what, 90% of their games over the last 10 seasons, they've had a national ranking. Well, and they've been ranked at some point in the season every year since 08. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's right. That's exactly right. Because they got to like 15th even in, in the 20, 14th yeah. season. Yep. Uh, 2014 season. They were 15th uh, at 5-1 and one before the bottom fell out, before the TCU trip. Uh, so, um, I don't know. It, it's... You know, I mean, there are still people who complain about the Bedlam record. There are still people who complain about the, uh, and you know, and they have every right to do that because the Bedlam record ain't good. And then there's people who say, well, by you know, by this point, the way the pro- where the program has been for ten years now, there should be another Big Twelve title or two, and that's probably correct. I mean, they they've been positioned to win, win three or four uh, Big Twelve championships instead of just the one. But if you look at the big picture, the body of work, the worst season, I, I don't even include 05 when I look at the Gundy era because that was such a weird season. And they got their quarterback hurt. Bobby Reed got hurt. And they weren't ready to beat anybody that year anyway. Uh, but if you take, if you draw a line at 06 and move forward, I mean, the worst season, really, the worst season was 14. And they had a winning record. And they won Bedlam and a bowl. So, I mean, that's your worst season, and it was dismal. And you agree, would agree with me because you, you and I watched every snap of it. It was yeah. terrible. It was unwatchable at, for, during that five-game losing streak. Uh, but if that's your worst season, then you've had a pretty good run. And if they can win 10 this year with a new quarterback, a new coordinator, uh, although the new coordinator is a real plus, I think. I mean, that energized that side of the ball. No doubt. But – 
this is just another statement uh, opportunity for Gundy's program. You know what I mean? Not for this team. Well, it is for this team, but certainly for the program. If they can send Rudolph and Washington the, to to and Washington to the NFL and turn around with new guys and win ten again, that would be a heck of an achievement. I think. Yeah, I think. I I tend to be conservative and say eight and four feels about right. I think they'll drop one somewhere in those first six games just because they're not going to be very experienced. And and Boise would probably be the one that I'd say they would because I mean that's that's Boise's Super Bowl too. You know that's the game Boise says. Sure. We win that game, we might be twelve and zero, and you know putting a decision in the college football playoff committee's heads. And you know down the stretch that that final three games will be brutal. Uh, OSU's been pretty successful against West Virginia in the last few seasons, but TCU and OU are two teams that give OSU problems anyway, and now on the road in November when conference title game spots are going to be on the line. I think those are both tough games, but even 8-4 and four, or you know 9-3, and three, certainly very successful season. Right. No, I mean, I remember 06-07. Uh, I mean, those were teams that had tons of athletes and Really good backfield personnel, and and uh, they just that Gunny's program was just learned. They but you know what they couldn't do at that time was win on the road. They just, they just had such a terrible time finishing on the road, and now they're one of the best. This decade they're one of the best road undefeated on the road in fifteen, undefeated on the road last season. I'm just saying they're one of the best teams in the country on the road. True road games in this yeah. decade. It's 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 really impressive what. What they've learned to do in regard to uh, holding it together and finishing. Now, you and I have watched some weird road victories. Uh, remember Lubbock in '15? Yeah, and every single time they go to Ames. Remember Texas last season? And '15. And oh, on '15, yeah. I mean, so, but but for the most part, they've been very very solid. And so, I mean, they're. You're right. Boise is a is a, is a uh, the season could turn good or not so good on that date. I just have a feeling that Gundy's going to really, really, uh, he's going to understand the importance of that moment. And that's going to be, you know, he's going to remember how, how Central Michigan felt. And I, not, that, not that Boise and Central Michigan are anything alike. Boise is really good. And I think Gundy will have him ready to play, and I, I'm expecting a heck of a game that day. Before, before we wrap up, uh, just kind of turning our attention nationally, is there one team or, or somebody that, that really intrigues you that well, you're, you're really interested to watch? I mean, Ohio State, sure. I mean, it just, it was a really quiet off season until the last month. And then Ohio State breaks, Maryland breaks, A&M, poor A&M, they invest all that money in facilities and they, they, Entice Jimbo Fisher to leave FSU and go to College Station. They give him this outlandish contract, and now before they even get in the starting blocks, they've got they've got a little scandal going, you know. So those three, not so much Maryland. Maryland, as soon as time expires on the Maryland Texas game, I won't even remember Maryland plays football the rest of the year. But I'll be interested that day, right? Won't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, especially after what Maryland did to Texas last year. Absolutely. And uh, but beyond that, nationally, I mean, I'm interested to see if the lefty at Alabama can be, you know, uh, right. a great player over four, uh, 
know, 15 games for them, most likely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Clemson, you see what SI called their defensive line? Like the best ever. Oh, wow. The best ever. So, I mean, Clemson will be great again. I mean, the teams I'm most interested in are, are right here. I mean, yeah. obviously. I mean, I want yeah. to see how the two Bedlam teams do with new quarterbacks. Um, I'm interested in what Bill Snyder can do with mm -hmm. his collection of misfit, the island of misfit toys. And he always puts together, you know, with juke, all those JUCOs and transfers, and, and he always gets it done. I'm telling you now, OSU at K-State, October 13th, that's such a big game. You know, what was it two years ago? Mason had a terrible pick six at K-State, but they recovered right. and won the game. Well, last year they were down 42-13. And then nearly came back and won, but that was yeah. just a ridiculous game. That was a ridiculous game. That was awful. Uh, yeah, no, I, th I think for me nationally, the the two ones that popped in my head, I think Nebraska is going to be really interesting to watch, and and how quickly that changes with Scott Frost, and same with UCLA and Chip Kelly. I'm pretty fascinated by that second week game with UCLA coming to Oklahoma and uh, how fast they're able to score points with his offense. No, I'm I, no, you're right about Scott Frost and Nebraska. I just don't, I think that's more of a uh, see me in three years type gradual deal. Gradual than an immediate. But but I, I think it's inevitable. I think they finally got it right uh, in regard to hiring the right guy. It was uh, Callahan, Polini, Riley. Yeah. I mean, you know, Solich was winning at a high level, and they that wasn't good enough. And then they go through this litany of underachievers, and now they got it right. I, it sure feels like they got it right. I just wish they were still in the Big 12. That's what I wish. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's that's about all we have time for here. Uh, like I said, this is episode number one of the Tulsa World's Best Oklahoma State Podcast for the 2018 when are we season. Do this again? Uh, every week, we'll uh, it'll be it'll be different next week with with Missouri State being you know, on a weekday. I'd be remiss if I didn't do like a 15 second Dax Hill update because I had a text exchange well, with a guy yesterday. Uh, so Dax is planning an early September trip to Ann Arbor. And then I think the Hill family is going to kind of all uh, t turn off their phones and sit at the dinner table and have, you know, some pretty good talking to talk time. And I, I, I think there's a possibility that, that Dax is the, Dax is the uh, safety at Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, the highest rated high school player in Oklahoma, a uh, top 10 guy on the 24-7 sports national list. Um, and, you know, Oklahoma State is one of his six finalists. There's some people who believe that Oklahoma State is one of his two finalists, with Alabama being the other. And maybe three Michigans in there. Well, we'll see. Uh, but, but I, you know, what Dax and Derek Hill, Derek's father, what those guys told me weeks ago, like in May, months ago then, I guess, was that they expected a chance for a mid-September mark, mid-September decision or late-September decision uh, from Dax Hill. And so I think there's at least a chance that, you know, Oklahoma State fans, eh, maybe a month from today, maybe five weeks, will finally, finally get some clarity on that deal. But he's a heck of a guy. I went and watched him practice the other day again. And, uh, I mean, he, he, he looks uh, – he, he's as impressive he, – he, he might be the most impressive high school football athlete I've ever seen in Tulsa. R.W. McWhorters is on that level too, but R.W. was a smaller – corner Dax is a big kid and he's gonna he's gonna really really help somebody 
Yeah, yeah. And we've got we've got a bunch of OSU coverage coming your way in the next week. As I mentioned, there's uh, a story on Taylor Cornelius I've been working on after spending a couple of days out in West Texas with his family and, and people who knew him since he, he was a child. Uh, interesting story this week on, on Enoch Smith, the defensive tackle from uh, OSU who transferred in from Michigan State uh, and, and sort of his journey and, and the, in the year in between, uh, just to sort of promo it a little, the year in between his time at Michigan State and OSU, uh, he went to community college for academics only and, and worked at Dick Sporting Goods for the year uh, and uh, you know, really kind of, I, I think it drove that. him drove him back to football, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, you know, sort of a unique twist and a reason to write about this week is his dad played football at Missouri State of all places. Right. So uh, there's a lot there. And as I mentioned, we'll be back on, on this podcast soon enough uh, and throughout the 2018 season. Uh, thank you for listening. And to keep up with my coverage, with Bill's coverage, uh, visit us at, at, at osusportsexpert.com and, and pick up your world, Tulsa world, every day. We'll be back with you soon. Thank you.